All right. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, this would be one of those ones where I, you know, if you want to open it up and read along, it's probably not a bad choice because there's a lot of names in this, and I may or may not butcher most of them. So uh, this is on the page 692 in your pew Bible uh, in the Old Testament. So Jeremiah 32, uh, we're going to do 1 through 3a, and then 6 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel in the presence of the witnesses who have signed the deed of purchase and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence, I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, House and fields and vineyards shall be bought again in this land. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter, the sixth chapter, beginning with the sixth verse. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, men of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
which he will bring about at the right time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in this present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of life that really is life. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Help us to hear behind the chatter of syllables the evidence of your word. Help us to grip and be gripped by your presence and thereby transformed by your spirit to the glory of Christ. Amen. I don't know if many of you know this, but I am a bit of an amateur astronomer. Now, I haven't wanted to alarm anybody, but since the beginning of the month, beginning of September, I've been tracking the number of hours of daylight each day. And uh, each and every day, there has been a reduction in the amount of daylight available, this reduction in daylight has had a serious impact on plants and flowers around us, so much so that each day has gotten shorter and thus nights have gotten longer and they've gotten chillier down to 50 six degrees last night when we started the month we had a total of 13 hours and six minutes of daylight and last night we only had 12 hours and five minutes that's a full hour and five minutes less sun now I have brought this to the attention of those at the National Atmospheric and Weather Association and because according to my calculations we're losing two minutes and 67 minutes of daylight each and every day. That means that by February we'll be facing sub-freezing temperatures even in the middle of the day. Uh, what's more is this trend continues the entire greater Chicago area will be plunged into 24-hour darkness by the 21st of June 2023 and our public officials are not even interested in addressing this problem when I called Noah they they told me that uh, there was something about listen to this the earth turning on its axis <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. This is absolutely crazy. It turns on its axis, so somewhere around December 21st, 
He said it as if he really knew. The days are going to start getting longer again. I think that either political party is going to have to recognize the importance of my discovery. Don't doubt me, I've done my own research. Well, occasionally, prophets appear nuts. A little lost. What do we have here in the book of Jeremiah to those who were around him was an expression of his genuine concern, but also his perhaps crazy prophetic hope. If you don't believe that uh, prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures can sound nuts, I suggest you spend some time in the book of Ezekiel. We have in our Hebrew Scripture reading from the prophet Jeremiah one such illustration of insanity. In the opening of chapter 32, the prophet Jeremiah has been imprisoned by Zedekiah the king, and he is under lock and key of the very palace guard. You don't get into a more confined prison than the prison that it was within the castle. Why is Jeremiah locked up by King Zedekiah? He's locked up because he's saying that the city of Jerusalem is going to fall to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian army, and that the people need to be ready for disaster. And this is killing morale. The king didn't like a prophet walking around saying, we're going to lose and we are going to lose big. But verse 2 in chapter 32 describes the desperation of the situation. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. So Jeremiah was not a tinfoil hat guy on his first set of prophecies. One didn't need to know international geopolitics to understand that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to cut off his southeast flank to keep Egypt from gaining complete control over access to the Mediterranean. And so Nebuchadnezzar was coming down from the northeast down to Judah. Judah just happened to be in the way. Jerusalem just happened to be in the way. He wanted to make sure that he would continue to have access to the Mediterranean Sea and that the Egyptians would not cut him off. And so in the process of his march to the Mediterranean, he ends up taking down Jerusalem, the Babylonian army. At the time, one of the most sophisticated, most substantial, most heavily armed bodies in the entire planet. And little teeny tiny Jerusalem with King Zedekiah thought they were going to hold them off. Siege warfare is horrid. What it means is, is that no one can go out of the city, no one can come into the city. Nothing comes into the city, that means the food stores are depleted very quickly. Nothing comes out of the city, that means that all of the sewage and all of the trash begins to build up. And Jeremiah is in the palace of Zedekiah under palace guard because he's saying, Look, do you not see what's going on? We are going to lose. And we have to be prepared for that loss. When Jeremiah is saying that he's not Looney Tunes. But what he does next qualifies for a tinfoil hat. His cousin, Hamal, comes in. 
He addresses the guards. He has access to Jeremiah. They're sitting there talking. Hamal realizes that the only way to get out of the city is to have enough hard currency, meaning silver or gold, to be able to bribe his way out past the Babylonians. And so he says to Jeremiah, I need access to hard money. How about if you buy my farm? Now the farm is outside of the city walls. It's currently being used as a latrine by the Babylonian army. He says, I'll give you the deed to the farm, whatever you can give me in return. And Jeremiah does the crazy thing. He says, I will pay you, Hanamal, full pre-war value for your farm. I'm going to count it out, and I'm going to count it out in silver. So Jeremiah sends for a messenger to go get his money. He brings it back, and there he carefully measures out the cash to give to his cousin Hanamel for a farm that has absolutely no value. He can't enforce the title to the property. He can't enforce the deed because the Babylonians would take a look at that piece of paper and laugh, tossing it to the wind. And from time to time, people of faith look a little crazy, look a little crazy to the world around them. How are things going right now? How's, uh, how's your money market looking? Hmm? In a fit of fiscal wisdom, I opted to finally open a money market account back at the end of December 2022. <laughs> how's that working for me now, right? Do not take financial advice from your pastor. What should, however, set us apart from the rest of the world is our capacity for contentment, no matter what the markets are doing, no matter the political polls, no matter the threat of war. What does Paul tell Timothy in his first letter, chapter 6, beginning verse 6? There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. We, after all, brought nothing into the world. We're taking nothing out of it. So we can, if we have food and clothing, be content with these. You got food? None of you look too hungry. I mean, beyond the fact that maybe you didn't eat enough for breakfast and you're thinking about brunch as soon as the service ends. Heading into the fall, you got a winter coat? Maybe you have to run and get some boots for the kids before it gets too snowy because their feet grew over the summer. But Paul says, if you got a coat, if you got some food, you're ahead of the game. You already have a lot more than you came into the world with. Be content. How can Paul be content in the middle of growing persecutions? He explains this in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and by which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things. And if Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one in whom we trust exceeds the powers of the market. The one in whom we trust as with the case of Jeremiah, was bigger than King Zedekiah, but guess what? He was also 
bigger than King Nebuchadnezzar. He alone has immortality. In other words, that one is going to outlive, outlast any earthly market or monarch. He dwells in an approachable life. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen? Paul can commend contentment because he is confident in the one who has dominion and sovereignty over all things. Paul is confident that the same sovereign's love for us carries a command for us to love others. As Paul wrote to Timothy, the goal of this command is love, he says in chapter 1 which comes from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. The goal of contentment must be wedded with the godliness of love. And here's the problem. We can find lots of people who preach contentment, right? Don't worry. Be happy. Work on your breath control. Attend to your breathing. In, out. Contentment will come Here's our investment portfolio. Wouldn't you like to make an investment? How about real estate? I have some bonds because the stock market is a little... Breathe deeply. I will bring you contentment. Except that is only a half truth. Contentment without godliness is selfishness. Contentment without godliness is selfishness. It is absorbed with our own manifestation of relaxation in the midst of anxiety and trouble, but nothing is poured out from that sense of comfort. What is currently being taught in many places right now is that your contentment is all that matters that you are not responsible for anybody else. In fact, they, by their neediness, may be jeopardizing your commitment, so cut those toxic people out of your life. Contentment by itself is worthless because it has no godly capacity. Paul suggests that it is contentment combined with godliness that brings forth generosity that shows a true witness to the presence of God. As Paul writes, if you pursue only contentment, you'll be tempted and trapped by senseless and harmful desires. But as for you, men of God, he writes to Timothy, shun all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And the tinfoil hat reality for the faithful is our willingness not only to be content but also be generous when everything around us spells doom. That's why Paul does not condemn wealth. He does not condemn wealth. In fact, he encourages that generosity combined with wealth can bring about great things. As for those in the present age who are rich, he writes, command them to not to be haughty or to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but rather in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, generous, ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future 
that they may take hold of life that is really life. Jeremiah bought worthless property. Why did he buy worthless property? He did it to make a point. It wasn't because he was a shrewd investor and thought that he was going to live long enough through the entire Babylonian exile and come back and claim his property. Jeremiah knew that that was going to be decades and that he would long be dead. He bought that property to help out his cousin, Hanamel. Hanamel, under the siege, needed to be able to care for his family and get out of Jerusalem. And so he said, I'll tell you what, I'll buy your farm and I will pay you full retail value for your farm so that you have enough silver to survive. It was an act of generosity that made no sense given the market conditions. The crash was going to happen. In fact, it did happen. But Jeremiah wanted to be clear that there was hope beyond this crisis. And so he took the deed, the sealed copy that was his proof of ownership, and he took the public copy, the one that was to be filed with the title office, and rolled them both up and put them into a jar and sealed them up and said, hold them for a long time. In the end, all the way to the end, things are going to be okay. My generosity will reap future value. That's the word, my friends, to us. That it's not just being relaxed and mellow and content regardless of what the Dow Jones does, regardless of how your portfolio looks, regardless of your mortgage upside down or right side up. That contentment is only half of the occasion. The other half of that is the capacity to be generous even in the midst of anxiety when all the rest of the world is saying, oh my goodness, hold on. If you want to live, there is no other time. There is no other time for us to be generous, for us to be giving, for us to combine contentment with godliness. And I know what's going to happen in the midst of your generosity when everyone else is telling you to hold on tight. You might look a little crazy. So what? A little nuts? You'll really live a life that is truly life. Amen. Let it stand, put aside our tinfoil hats, and affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty.